Well, good morning again. Uh, It's uh, now time for us to look at God's Word together. And so would you please take out your Book of Mormon so that we can get started? What? What? What's that? No, Book of Mormon? Oh, of course, how silly of me. You want the Bible, don't you? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Well, then would you please take out your Roman Catholic Bible and turn with me to the apocryphal book of Judith. Tobit? Ecclesiasticus? Oh, you don't have those either, eh? All right, then. I know, I know, I know. It's books about Jesus you want, isn't it? Like Gospels, yeah? Yeah? Okay, would you please turn with me then to the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, perhaps? Okay, then you win. Would you please take out the Bible in the seat in front of you and turn with me to the contents page there at the beginning? Well, there you have it, folks. The 66 books that we here at Chatswood Presbyterian Church acknowledge as making up God's True and authoritative written word, the Bible. Uh, 66 books that we believe are unlike any other books in the whole world. Written by human authors, but inspired by God. And so coming to us with all the authority of God himself. But how is it that we have come to, to consider these particular 66 books? as God's final and authoritative word to us, as opposed to any of those other books I mentioned, for example. In other words, how can we be sure that there's nothing missing from our Bible and sure that there's nothing in it that shouldn't be there? Because when you think about it, these are really important questions, aren't they? Because if we can't be sure of what true Scripture is, then we can't properly distinguish theological truth from error. Over the next five weeks here at church, we're undertaking a topical sermon series called Ancient Debates, where we'll think about the historical background to a number of key theological beliefs that we 21st century Christians often take for granted. Uh, Things like uh, uh, our understanding of the nature of the Trinity and the person of Jesus Christ, Things like that. But as we commence the series today, we're going to start by considering how the early church answered this important question of what constitutes the true word of God. Because without knowing the answer to that question, well, no one can confidently settle any theological debate, ancient or modern. And at a more personal level, unless we're convinced that what we have here really is the Bible God intended for us, then we can never be truly confident in our salvation or in knowing the kind of life God expects from us. So let's get to it. And to begin, let me start with a quick definition. Because you'll see that today's topic is called the canon Now, when Bible scholars talk about the canon, they're not talking about a big gun that goes boom, okay? Rather, they're just using a technical term to describe a list of books considered to be the true word of God. And uh, so, there on your Bible's table of contents, you can see 
the 66 books that were gathered together to make up what we acknowledge as the canon. But how did the gathering of these 66 books happen? Well, I guess we can say it started with the Ten Commandments. Uh, They were, after all, the very first words of God written down for preservation among his people. And so, in Exodus 31, we read, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. They were the first words of God written down and kept for his people. But throughout Israel's history, this collection of divine, authoritative words grew in size. At the instruction of God, uh, Moses went on to write the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, After his death, it was Joshua who added to the collection. Uh, Later, others in Israel, usually those deemed prophets, wrote additional words from God. uh, The likes of Samuel and, and David and Isaiah and others. And the Old Testament canon continued to grow until around 400 B.C., That is, up until the Jews returned from Babylonian exile. The 400 years after their return is what scholars often refer to as the intertestamental period. That is, the period of time between the Old and the New Testaments. During this period, no other books were added to the Old Testament. Not that other Jewish books weren't written during this time. They were a number of which became known as the Apocrypha. Now, perhaps you've heard of some of them. Uh, One and two Maccabees, uh, Baruch, uh, Tobit, uh, Judith, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, along with additions to Esther and Daniel. Uh, They were Jewish books written during this intertestamental period, uh, containing historical accounts of that time, uh, along with various moral and doctrinal opinions. Uh, Books that were treated with considerable respect by the Jews, but which were never considered as scripture. And so we see the great first century Jewish historian, Josephus, writing, From Artaxerxes to our own times, that is, uh, throughout the 400-year intertestamental period, a complete history has been written, that is, the Apocrypha, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records, that is, the Old Testament. And Josephus goes on to say that the reason the Jews didn't consider the apocryphal books worthy of inclusion in the Bible was because they weren't viewed as prophetic messages from God. Now, of course, this is an understanding that you would surely expect Jesus to correct if the Jews had gotten it wrong. And yet significantly, of all the times we see Jesus challenging the Jewish religious authorities for their numerous errors, not once is he recorded as saying, oh, and by the way, guys, um, you have mistakenly ignored a great big portion of God's word to you. In fact, Jesus is never recorded as even mentioning the Apocrypha. And so the evidence is strong that Jesus only ever accepted the same Old Testament books that we find in our Bibles today, and not the Apocrypha. A fact driven home in Luke chapter 11, 
where Jesus sums up all of the Old Testament martyrs in the phrase, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. What's so significant about this phrase? Well, by it, Jesus, what he's doing is he's canvassing the entire canon of Jewish scripture as he understood it. Uh, The story of Abel's death being found in the first book of the Jewish canon, Genesis. And the story of Zechariah's death being found in the last, two chronicles. Uh, Keeping in mind that that whilst the Jews had the same Old Testament books as in our Bible, um, they, they listed them in a different order with two chronicles coming in at the end. And so by covering just Genesis to Chronicles, Jesus was implicitly rejecting the Apocrypha. Do you get it? Evidently, all the New Testament writers felt the same way as Jesus. And so whereas they quote the Old Testament hundreds of times, um, often even indicating divine authority with words like, um, as the scriptures say, and as it is written, and, and uh, thus says the Lord, uh, the best we can say about the Apocrypha is that the New Testament uh, possibly alludes to it uh, a couple of times. certainly doesn't quote, quote it, but, but possibly alludes to it. Uh, such as in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, uh, which is held by some as the clearest allusion to the Apocrypha. Uh, It refers to an occasion uh, when uh, certain faithful Jews were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Uh, What might that be an allusion to? Well, according to some, it's an allusion to to Maccabees, uh, which contains a story of a Jewish family who were tortured to death by the Greek king Antiochus because they refused to eat pork. As uh, one of the sons was about to die, uh, he defiantly said to the king, "Uh, better to be killed by men and cherish God's promise to raise us again. There will be no resurrection to life for you. So does Hebrews 11 contain an allusion to this story from the Apocrypha? I'll let you be the judge of that one. But even if it is, that still wouldn't indicate that the Apocrypha is divinely inspired. I mean, in Acts chapter 17, uh, the Apostle Paul is even, he even quotes from a pagan poem. Uh, But obviously that doesn't give it uh, the status of, of Holy Scripture. And so it's not surprising that in the first couple of centuries after Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, the vast majority of the early church never considered the Apocrypha as part of God's word. In fact, they noted that the Apocrypha contained certain historical and chronological and geographical errors. And they noted certain theological issues too, like praying that God would forgive the sins of dead people. And the idea that giving money to the poor can atone for your own sins. Uh, These teachings, they realised, were at odds with the gospel that had been taught by the apostles and on which the early church had been founded. And so, like the Jews, uh, these early Christians also came to think of the Apocrypha as helpful texts, but nothing more. For example, example, helpful for filling in some historical gaps 
of the intertestamental period. And, and helping in, in encouraging believers as they read stories about the faith and courage of many of the Jews during this time, like, like the story of that family I mentioned a moment ago. They, they considered the Apocrypha helpful, but not inspired or, or authoritative. But over time, uh, the influence of the Apocrypha grew. And this was especially the case when in 404 AD, a monk named Jerome, uh, translated the Bible into Latin and chose to include the Apocrypha. Now, at the time, uh, Jerome went to great pains to make known that he was not including the Apocrypha because it contained the books of canon, but rather, as he put it, books of the church, uh, books that were helpful for believers but not inspired by God. But as it turns out, Jerome's translation became the most popular Bible uh, for centuries to come. And Jerome's distinction between the canon and the, and the apocrypha was gradually lost in some parts of the wider church. It, it was a matter which remained unsettled for centuries to come and really only came to a head in 1546 when at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha to be part of the canon and condemned anyone who believed otherwise. And uh, they're still there today in a Roman Catholic Bible. But what's also particularly noteworthy here is the fact that the Council of Trent was organised as a direct response to the teachings of Martin Luther and the rapidly spreading Protestant Reformation. At this time, Luther and the Reformers were arguing against various Roman Catholic beliefs, such as prayers for the dead, and that salvation comes through works rather than faith alone. And of course, it was in the Apocrypha that the Catholic Church found support for these beliefs. It's also important to note that the Council of Trent was the very first time a major council claimed the authority to deem a literary work as scripture. It was a significant development. Because in contrast, Protestants have always held that the church can't make something scripture, but can only recognise that which already is scripture. You know, a bit like a, a police investigator. He can uh, uh, recognise counterfeit money as counterfeit and, and genuine money as genuine. But he doesn't have the authority to call counterfeit money genuine. Uh, only the official treasury of a nation can produce real money. And in the same way, only God is the source of genuine scripture. And we can only recognise it as such. But the Council of Trent claimed an authority way beyond this. So should we consider the Apocrypha as genuine scripture? Well, the Jews didn't think so, and Jesus didn't think so, and the New Testament writers didn't think so, and the vast majority of those in the early church didn't think so, not to mention all the issues with its contents. And so on this basis, I think I think we can confidently exclude the Apocrypha from our Bibles, sticking instead to the same Old Testament as Jesus himself. 
So that's the Old Testament canon. But what about the new? Uh, What's the story of how the 27 New Testament books found their way into our Bible? And can we be confident about them? Well, I guess we can say that the formation of the New Testament took place gradually and, and organically. It started, of course, with the public ministry of Jesus himself, whose, whose spoken words were always regarded as absolutely authoritative. And then it continued through the ministry of his disciples, or apostles as they became known. Uh, Jesus confirmed that they would be given the ability and authority to, to speak on God's behalf. When in John chapter 14, he said to them, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, the apostles taught with the authority of Jesus, not just in their spoken words, but in their written words too. And so not... Uh, surprisingly, very early in the history of the church, we see the writings of the apostles being treated as God's word. Uh, For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter encourages his readers to remember the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. See, Jesus himself now spoke through them. In the same chapter, Peter goes on to call the writings of the Apostle Paul Scripture, giving them the same authority as the Old Testament. He says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other Scriptures to their own destruction. Note that Peter doesn't say the Scriptures here, he says, The other scriptures, showing us that that Paul's writings are to be considered scripture too. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul does a similar thing when he writes, For the scripture says, the worker deserves his wages. And where does that quote come from? The worker deserves his wages? Well, it's found nowhere other than Luke's gospel. And so here, Paul's calling the Gospel of Luke, Scripture. And so we see that from the earliest days of the church, the writings of the apostles and their close associates, like like Luke, were considered to be God's Word. By 100 AD, all the books we now find in our New Testament had been written. And for the next 100 years, careful copies were made and exchanged between neighbouring churches who received them as authoritative and read them publicly. But during this time, there was still no complete collection of the 27 New Testament books as we know it. In fact, only after the apostles died and certain false teachers arrived on the scene was there any real impetus for that to happen. Uh, Only then came the need to discern which books were truly authoritative and which weren't. Because some false teachers tried to reject certain New Testament books. A bloke named Marcion, for example, 
who taught that the God of the Old Testament, oh, he's way inferior to the God of the New. He claimed to find evidence for this in the Gospel of Luke and in the writings of Paul. And so he rejected all the other books. And mind you, he also edited out all of the bits of Luke and Paul's writings that didn't fit with his theory too. And then there were the false teachers who tried to add their own books to the New Testament. Like the Gnostics, for example, who taught that we're saved not through faith in Jesus, but by freeing ourselves from this material world through knowledge. And they produced numerous books which contain this kind of teaching. Books which usually claimed, falsely, to be written by someone close to Jesus in order to give them credibility. For example, there's the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary. Have you heard of the, uh, the novel, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown? Have you heard of it? Of course you have. Well, the premise of it was built on the idea that Jesus' true, original teachings are found in these Gnostic writings, which were supposedly kept secret by uh, uh, power-hungry church leaders. It's the kind of alleged explosive expose that gets bandied about from time to time in the media, usually by those eager to get their own book onto the New York bestsellers list. And unfortunately, it's the sort of stuff that's sometimes believed by those who don't know their history. Because the fact is, no one has ever tried to cover up these writings. Uh, Their existence has been on public record from the beginning. It's just that from the earliest days, they were recognised as bogus. Here, let me quote from the Gospel of Thomas, and I'll let you decide for yourself if it sounds legit. Okay? Here we go. Uh, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. (laughs) Jesus said, Lo, I shall lead her, so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) You didn't see that quote in Dan Brown's novel, did you? (laughs) And so from 200 to 300 AD, with the rise of these false teachers, careful examination was made to discern which writings were authoritative and which weren't. What criteria was used? Well, firstly, questions were asked regarding the authority of the author. That is, whether or not the book really was written by an apostle or given some kind of apostolic authorization. Secondly, external evidence was considered. And in particular, a consensus of opinion among the existing churches as to a book's historical authenticity. And thirdly, they looked at internal evidence. That is, whether or not the contents of the books were in in accord with the teachings of the apostles. Now, during this time of examination, there were a few books in our New Testament which were, at times, doubted by some. So, for example, Hebrews was questioned because it doesn't say who wrote it. 
Uh, James was questioned because of its emphasis on works in the Christian life. Uh, there was some hesitancy with 2 Peter and 2 and 3 John, uh, mainly because initially they hadn't been circulated widely, so weren't as well known. Uh, Jude was questioned uh, because it quotes a book from a book that isn't in the Bible. And the book of Revelation was questioned because of its apocalyptic nature. But we need to keep in mind that these books were only ever questioned temporarily and only ever by a small minority of the church. Indeed, the fact that we know that some people raised doubts about certain books and that those doubts were taken seriously by the early church ought to give us confidence that everything we have in our New Testament really is the authentic word of God. The, the books were tested. The questions answered. In addition, it ought to reassure us to know that, that of all the books which were doubted by, by a large number of churches, like, for example, the Gnostic writings, it should reassure us to know that not one was later accepted into the canon. And so it was that by 400 AD, uh, this period of examination ended with complete uh, uh, agreement to the New Testament canon across the whole church, giving us the New Testament we know today. With regards to this whole process, one Bible scholar says, it is easy to exaggerate the significance of the length of time and the amount of disagreement. And I think that's true. The fact is, overall, there was surprising agreement among the early Christians as to what was true scripture. Well, surprising, I guess, until we remember to bring God into the equation. A God, the one who is sovereign over all history, uh, the one whose sheep know his voice and the one whose desire has always been for us to have his true word, that, that we might know him and live for him. And so, friends, that's how uh, the 66 books of our Bible got to be there and why we can be confident they are true scripture. But I guess it still leaves us with the question of, of whether or not we can expect God to, to give us more writings into the future, to add to what we have here. And what about those who claim he's already done so in books like the Quran and, and the Book of Mormon, for example? Should we see them as, as newer, more authoritative words from God, as some people do? Well, I think the Bible itself answers these questions for us. In the book of Hebrews, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. These verses, they show us that Jesus 
is the culmination of God's revelation to humanity. That we're now living in the last days of redemptive history. That there's a a finality to the revelation of God in Jesus. And that once his revelation has been completed, no more is to be expected. With the completion of the apostles' writings, we have the final record of everything that God wants us to know about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its meaning for the lives of believers for all time. In other words, the canon is now closed. Nothing more to be added. As we saw last week in the the final chapter of Revelation, where the angel declared, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, of course, this warning is is primarily referring to the book of Revelation. But, But I don't think it's by accident that Revelation is the last book of the New Testament. As theologian Wayne Grudem notes, Revelation has to be placed last in the canon, just as Genesis must be placed first, for it tells us of creation, so Revelation must be placed last, for its focus is to tell us of God's new creation. Thus, it is not inappropriate for us to understand this exceptionally strong warning at the end of the Revelation as applying in a secondary way to the whole of Scripture. Placed here, the warning forms an appropriate conclusion to the entire canon of Scripture and suggests to us that we should expect no more Scripture to be added beyond what we already have. (coughs) So there you go. So friends, what do you think? What What do you think about all this? What do you think we should take away from everything that we've thought about this morning? What do you think we should do about this? Well, friends, I think the bottom line should be that we, we, when we look at this thing, this thing here, we can be completely confident knowing that there is nothing in it that shouldn't be there. And we should be completely confident that there's nothing missing from it either. Friends, as we we look at all this this stuff from history, we should see the fact is God has has faithfully given us here his true words. True words which, as we'll see in coming weeks, were used to settle a number of ancient theological debates. But also true words by which he now speaks to you and to me. Friends, this has got to be more than just some kind of intellectual exercise. Finding, you know, something really interesting about history. What we've seen today needs to change us and our attitude towards this thing here. Because what we have here is the true word 
of God. Friends, knowing this, let's be people who read the Bible, shall we? And let's be people who trust it. And let's be people who cherish it. And let's be people who do what it says every day of our lives. For as Moses said to the Israelites, they are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to thank you so much for the way you do speak to us in the Bible. We want to thank you for the way you have guided your faithful people throughout the ages to to preserve and and gather the scriptures just as you intended us to have them. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that because of this we can be fully confident that in the Bible there there is everything we need to know about how to be saved and live a life that pleases you. And so, Father, we pray that we would never, ever take any of this for granted. But rather, Father, may we be a people committed to to regularly reading your word and to obeying it too. In Jesus' name, amen.